Hi, everyone. Just a quick trigger warning before you continue with this episode. Uh, this entire conversation will be dealing with the topic of suicide. Uh, so if that is not in your wheelhouse, uh, please uh, feel free to stop here. Thanks so much. Cheers. Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Uh, on the podcast today, we have Lauren Firth and Susan Tarilla. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Awesome, awesome. We're going to be talking about some some cool stuff today. Before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast on the lands of the Klaamen, Klaus, Homoko, and Comox First Nations, who were one nation before we settlers came in and separated them into reserves. Um, we're recording today. It's June 30th, 2023. Tomorrow is what what we settlers like to call Canada Day, and what most of the Indigenous folks. Um, have other names for um and uh i'm gonna be wearing my orange shirt tomorrow for for canada today just to acknowledge um the troubles of the residential school system in canada and all the other problems that uh, we've caused for for our indigenous folks here uh also wanted to talk about for a second about my little square so I've got a little square here. A little square uh, is uh, uh, symbolizes. Oh, and I've also got my uh, my uh, my raven there. Uh, it was designed by uh, Matthew Nordley, uh, a local fellow who's actually on the fire department with me, and uh, also uh, a Dene um, member of the Dene uh, Nation and um, and an artist. So he made the, he made the shirt for me. But uh, at the same time. Uh, I've got this little square on here, and this little square is for is 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 a symbol of something called the Moosehide Campaign. Uh, the Moosehide Campaign uh, is an Indigenous-led grassroots movement of men and boys, and all Canadians who are standing up against violence towards women and children. Uh, wearing this Moosehide signifies your commitment to honor and respect and protect women and children in your life, and to work together to end violence against women and children and all those under the under the along the gender continuum help spread the Moosehide campaign by sharing with your family communities and organizations uh to order pins donate or learn more the pins are free you can order you can order a bunch of pins and get a bunch of little postcards you can hand out to people uh, you can go to the moosehidecampaign.ca um yeah so it's just a, a, a an easy way for folks to sort of take action talk about truth and reconciliation if they kind of don't know what else they can do um and uh also i know folks in the past i've mentioned to folks in the past that i am vegan they're like ben what are you doing wearing a moose hide well <laughs> the good the good folks of the moose hide campaign have been kind enough to offer a moose hide square you can get or you can get this this fake uh plastic thing um mm-hmm. that i got so no i'm not uh not crossing my values but still still supporting the organization Excuse me. Um, so with that, we'll get to uh, today's topic. So um, I found Susan and Lauren through a, a, a 
presentation they did through a it was a conference right in 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 the UK and was it was it put on by the PBS UK folks is that was that the one I saw you you folks at Yes it was so yeah. the PBS UK is lovely enough to host it but it's put together by several organizations that are UK based PBS organizations that do some really impressive work and they've been doing it for a few years now Awesome awesome um, and we're going to be talking today, so maybe I just uh, we'll start with a, a a trigger warning here, which we'll also throw on the show notes. Um, we're going to be talking all about suicide today. Lots and lots of suicide related topics. The whole episode is about suicide, so certainly if that's a, um, a triggering area for you, you might want to skip ahead to another one. Um, and we'll certainly we can share some resources in the show notes as well. If you know if you've been triggered. And, need some help there's some uh, there's some good uh, good resources um sort of across continents that uh, folks can access for that and we might even touch on some of that today um and uh so this kind of this conversation kind of comes out of you know seeing you folks on that webinar seeing a reference and we'll, we'll we'll explain what all this stuff means later but seeing a reference to uh dr kent corso's um prosper model um um which uh, we're gonna, I'm going to share some information on that as well. Kent currently is sharing with me whenever he puts out um, his workshop that he does. He, he does a workshop on kind of this uh, evidence-based uh, model for suicide uh, that he, he's trying to really get out to the masses. It's super cheap and you get like six CEUs if you're a BCBA or actually you get CEUs if you're like a bunch of different professions. It's, it's pretty awesome. He offers a whole, a whole like continuing education for almost every kind of mental health field that exists um and uh, it's super cheap like i think it's like 160 bucks us for like three three days of you know sort of solid training with lots of opportunities to practice skills and so on and so forth but um uh lauren and susan were using were you were using kind of embedding this prosper model into kind of a, a pbs framework which is something I know a lot of folks will be interested to hear about because most of the suicide intervention research and conversations don't seem to apply to sort of folks, you know, maybe who have intellectual or developmental disabilities or maybe are autistic and so on. And uh, and uh, so folks are often in a in a in a bind when it comes to those things. So when I found uh, that you folks were doing this work, I was like, wow, we got to we got to tell everybody. Um but before we kind of dive into that, maybe we can just kind of get a little bit bit of information about you, a little bit of origin story, kind of how you got into the field and uh, and then kind of how you came to be, uh, you know, uh, working in kind of this area and kind of how you two met as well. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm happy to go for, first. Sure. I'm Susan, just in case you don't know my voice yet. Yeah. Um, Susan Torella, I'm a board certified behavior analyst licensed in the States, also a UK behavior analyst certified here in, in the United Kingdom. Um, I got into the field back in 2000, actually. So aging myself a little bit. Um, I was in my undergrad studying psychology and wanted to get some experience working with children. Um, the dean of the department happened to post an advert that we were recruiting for a uh, tutor to work with a family that had autistic twins. And I was like, well, that sounds fun. I like kids. I don't know anything about autism, but I can have a go and see how much I can learn. Um, and so I fell in love with the little, the little ones straight away. They were four years old running around just as little four-year-old should half naked, mm. um, amazing guys. And I was trained in um, applied behavior analysis uh, methodologies 
um, back again. This was 2000 in Northern Virginia. Hmm. So this would definitely be a, a dual relationship now. But back then, I also got to be their nanny, <laughs> which I think really informed, though, it really informed my brand of behavior analysis and really compassionate, you know, individual first, family first. Um, I rejected some of the discrete trial teachings that I wasn't as comfortable with mm. and really um, had much more of a flavor of this PBS person-centered approach um, and really respecting the family and their values and their goals. So that's kind of how I got started. 23 years later, I am now um, living in the UK. I've lived in London on and off for the past few years, um, COVID um, preventing some of that time. But um, I'm now the clinical lead here at Positive Behavior Support Consultancy. That's where I met Lauren when I joined um, this past summer. So I've been with the organization for just under a year now. And that's where I learned about the, the amazing work that the organization has been doing through their behavior intensive community support model to support individuals with autism, as well as learning disabilities, and then more specifically, how they tailor it to um, suicide prevention work. So that's just a little bit about me. Cool. Where, where'd, uh, where, where'd you go to school? I did my undergrad and my master's at George Mason University in mm. Northern Virginia. Mm. My undergrad, like I mentioned, was in psychology and then did my master's was in special education. And then I'm actually currently um, a doctoral student at Capella University. I'm doing a PhD in psychology. Oh, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. All right, Lauren? Yeah. Um, so I'm Lauren Firth. My journey started in the behavior analysis field around 2015. So I've been in the field for around eight, uh, potentially nine years now. My journey kind of started off through a friend, actually, who introduced mm. me to behavior analysis. It, to be honest, it wasn't something that was a big topic in, in psychology when I studied it at university. So it was actually more through a friend who kind of mentioned the field and that that she was working in it. And I was really intrigued having not known much about behavior analysis or focused on that the behavioral side of, side of psychology, I guess. Uh, so yeah, I started off in working in homes with young individuals with autism and learning disabilities. And then um, I quite quickly pivoted. I really enjoyed that work, but moving to I actually, based on that work, decided to go ahead and do the master's in behavior analysis. So it really did intrigue me enough enough to make that move. Um, so I then moved to Wales, um, North Wales in, in, in Wales. Um, and I, yeah, and then that's when I studied behavior analysis. And that's where I did a big chunk of my experience in a special needs school which actually um, embodied and employed a PBS team. So that was a really great experience for me to work with lots of individuals with differing needs, dis differing um, disabilities uh, and age ranges as well. So that was a really key part of my career in terms of that's when I became a behavior analyst and became board certified. Uh, and since then, I've worked at PBSC for around three and a half years now. Um, and PBSC is where I've yeah, started to work with individuals who've presented with suicide ideation and suicide attempts. So yeah, I'd say over the past three years really is where um, that's been a really key interest and passion of mine. Right on. Wales, where, where do you go to school in Wales? Yeah, so the university is called Bangor University and ah, it's got yes. some really great teachers and, and professors there in, in the PBS field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got a lot of big gurus that have come out of there. You know, mm -hmm. people, PBS, I've had a, a few folks from the UK on, um, um, and I've always been fascinated with the UK in terms of PBS and kind of the UK approach to PBS. And, and you know, and, and, and I, I, I'm starting to see, it's interesting to kind of watch sort of from 
from my end about how it's taken a while, but how kind of the American view of PBS in the UK view of are starting to combine more and, and they're starting to hang out more and, and you know we're seeing you know um uh, more presence bikes or UK folks at APBS conferences but we're also seeing you know North American folks at some of the UK conferences which have been going on for a while you know like build and others and um um I'm curious, uh, Susan, just being being from the States and kind of going over to the UK, kind of what your sort of first impressions were of kind of positive behavior support in the UK. No, I think um, I'll be quite candid at first. I was like, oh, this is just like a different branding thing. So it feels mm. a bit more palatable. Yeah. But honestly, when I actually read some of the work, well, you know, more recently by Gore, his recent and Gore at all and the recent 2022 publication, mm. it really aligned with my values as a behavior analyst to just be compassionate um, first, like I mentioned, person-centered. Uh, I was very fortunate early in my career. I worked in public schools in Northern Virginia um, where they had done school-wide PBS. So that mm. understanding of more like organizational change and broad systems approach really does marry very well with other research and organizational behavior management. So I think that PBS is a unique way to make sure that we are putting the person in the center of all the decision-making. We're using those least restrictive practices and really challenging ourselves to be creative and values-driven, um, ensuring that everything that we're doing is truly socially significant from the goals to the interventions and the procedures that the individual has a voice in everything. So I really found it uh, matched my values and my goals as a behavior analyst, as a practitioner um, very, very nicely. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And also, I think that I'm hoping that in the United States, that where they're moving from this fee for service model, I hear some organizations talking about more value based care models and making those relationships with insurance companies. And it's nice that here in the UK, we don't have that history. We're really right going straight for the, that value based care. We don't have to worry about billable hours and all of that. So I think in some respects, we're a bit ahead of the curve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about you, Lauren? What what was it like, sort of, just when, when you kind of got into the field in 2015 and jumped right into working in in, in a PBS team? What, what was that like? Yeah, definitely. I think those early years, I learned a lot. I think initially it started off more kind of, uh, as Susan said, really. My early experience was kind of like discrete trial teaching and and those kind of things. And I think where I've really found my values sit best is in that more PBS approach, where we're very much you know, asking the, what the person wants to work on, working towards goals that are meaningful. So I think, yeah, I'm really passionate about quality of life. And I really love that I've found a company where, yeah, and my previous workplaces as well have really cared about, you know, what does this person want to achieve um, and only working on things which are meaningful for that person um, and not because of anything else, really. I think that's, that's really key really and what awesome. drew me to the field. Right on, right on. And so maybe you could just uh, tell me a little more about about the company you work at and kind of how long it's been around and how it's yeah, of course. sort of thing. Are you a solopreneur running your business alone and need help getting more exposure to your target audience while growing your brand? At Beal Marketing Group, we specialize in delivering comprehensive marketing solutions tailored to your unique needs. Our team of seasoned experts excels in crafting creative strategies that captivate your target audience, build brand authority, generate high quality leads, 
and streamline your business processes. Whether you're seeking a brand makeover, effective lead generation, or a plug-and-play solution that takes care of everything for you, we have you covered. Services can include strategy sessions, video editing, social media management, brand board development, and even a virtual assistant. When you choose Beal Marketing Group, you're partnering with a team of passionate professionals who treat your business as our own. We go above and beyond to understand your goals, target audience, and unique challenges to craft tailor-made strategies that produce remarkable results. Schedule your free discovery call today at bmgfreeconsult.com. That's bmgfreeconsult.com. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultant.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is prosper. Yeah, so PBS Consultancy um, was founded initially in 2008 uh, by Sarah Wickling. Sarah is our CEO, so she's still the CEO of the business. Uh, she's also a psychologist and a board certified behavior analyst as well. Um, and yeah, she started the company on her own and, and it kind of grew organically. Um, and we're now one of the largest PBS organizations in the UK, which is really exciting. And we're really proud of that. We're a team of behavior analysts, trainee behavior analysts, behavior technicians. Uh, we do also have learning disability and mental health nurses in the team as well as well as um, experts by experience and trauma and autism specialists as well. And I guess the key focus of our work really is we do predominantly support people with autism and or learning disabilities, but we do support other individuals as well. Uh, and we're working at the minute predominantly across the UK, um, mainly across London and the Midlands. Uh, and we're mainly working with individuals who are at risk of things like hospital admission, um, placement breakdown, or who might just be, well, not just be, but who are displaying behaviors of concern, which are putting them, you know, themselves at risk, or they might be putting other people at risk. And as I mentioned before, um, therefore their quality of life is suffering. So they're the types of individuals that we tend to support. And in 2016, uh, Sarah, the CEO, actually created a five-stage model based to address just um, exactly that population, really, people who were struggling with quality of life, who were displaying severe behaviors of concern. Um, so yeah, we have a five-stage model, which I'm sure we'll talk about um, yeah, further on in the podcast. But yeah, that model is very much based on evidence-based models and is a kind of extension of, of that. And it's something I know that Susan and the clinical team have been um, aiming to publish and I think are due to publish hopefully within within this year. Yeah, we have a paper under review right now that will be submitted in the next month. Oh, that's awesome. So just for, for a little terminology for folks, um, uh, that maybe haven't heard heard a lot of the UK perspective. Uh, in the UK, learning disabilities are different than they are in the states, right? Um, so it, it, that's right. So, like, I know in, in the states, learning disabilities are kind of more, you know, things like dyslexia, dyscalculia, um, you know, all, everything in between. And and in the UK, learning disabilities, folks with learning disabilities are folks with intellectual disabilities. Is that 
accurate. Yes, that that is correct. So yeah. you, we would technically use those terms interchangeably, though they're, gotcha. they're the learning disability umbrella. You're right, is more broad in the United States. So thanks for yeah. clarifying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right on. No, no worries. Uh, it took me a while to kind of put that together. I was like, uh, mm-hmm. is, is everyone working with dyslexia in in the UK, and that's it. And, um, and why aren't we? And got me thinking for a bit. Um, <laughs> and then. And then the other thing I thought you kind of pointed out, Lauren, about sort of the the variety of professionals you have working with you. The thing that drew me to PBS in the UK early on was um, I spent a lot of time chatting with uh, a guy named uh, Jonathan Beebe, um, uh, who uh, at the time he was a, I think he was a learning disability nurse, maybe he still is. Um, I think he's got his own company now and does some other stuff, but um, um and he was talking a lot about how these learning disability nurses, these mental health psych, psych nurses, I guess, as, as they could be called over here, um, were all into this PBS thing. Um, um, what's what's sort of the value of having these kind of learning disability nurses on staff? So we have a whole division within our service that is run and um, all the services are delivered by a nursing team. Mm. And it's called our transforming care division. And mm. that's aligned with the NHS long-term plan to ensure that individuals who are supported in hospital have regular care and treatment reviews, that if needed, they have independent life plans. Mm. And then that if there is a, a death of somebody in hospital that is reviewed um, retroactively by a learning disabilities nurse as part of the team. Mm. So the whole team of learning disability nurses and other mental health nurses um, are there to deliver on that and to help the, the organization support the transforming care initiative across mm. the UK. Um, but they're also a really lovely resource for us to collaborate yeah. with as behavior analysts. And they are so open also to, to PBS strategies. And so it's really nice because it, we are ambassadors, honestly. So me learning more about their role, when I see somebody in care, I can advocate for some of these different reviews and safeguards to protect them. And then vice versa, when they're making a recommendation in a care and treatment review for this person to get stepped down from hospital, Mm -hmm. they know that there are evidence-based ways that we can support those people. So it's, it's a really lovely marriage. All right. So what, what is this, this BICS model? What's this all about? This is Lauren's baby. I'm going to pass it off to her. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. so yeah, the BICS model came about. Um, so yeah, do you want, sorry, do you want me to talk about the BICS model be- before we move to BICS suicide prevention? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, get a little yeah. background. Yeah, be good. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, the BICS five-stage model um, has five different stages and it's essentially taking um, the person through from kind of that referral stage right through to the end of kind of hopefully meeting the outcomes and yeah, celebrating that success. So our mm. first stage is called matching. So in our matching stage, stage we're dedicating time to kind of receive the referral understand about the person what are the needs what are the current barriers um what do they want to achieve from our support but also to understand who is in the network what what support is already being delivered and it's really about assessing the goodness of fit so checking that you know where the most appropriate service to to support this individual if we at that stage feel that you know that we are a good fit we will move through to our engaging stage and I think this is a stage which maybe um is slightly different to other models that that we've seen in the research um and it's it's really about 
having a stage and a time where we're purely focusing on building that rapport, uh, increasing that engagement and understanding, you know, what are the, what are the network doing? What are they working towards and where we can fit within that network? So it's just really nice to have that time and space to just literally have no other motive other than to get to know the person and learn about them, their communication preferences, their likes and, and dislikes, and also ensure that we've got consent, but also assent so that we're looking Mm. at what does this person want to work on versus what don't they want to work on we then move into our understanding stage so this is our functional behavior assessment so this is when we're really looking at you know what are the reasons for the behaviors of concern what does this person's life look like um are there any mismatches or or gaps in their life that we think um, we could help support with to increase their quality of life? But also, what is the support around them? Uh, and at the end of that that report, we would be coming up with um, some hypotheses, and we'd be giving recommendations to the network, and likely recommending things that we feel that we can help with as well. That's when we move into our delivering stage. So our delivering stage is our intervention. Uh, Mm. At the beginning of this stage, we tend to set three goals with the person or the the family, uh, depending on on the age of the person. uh, And we will only set goals that are socially significant and meaningful. um, And then we will develop our intervention plan to, you know, to address and and work towards meeting those goals. So we'll be taking data and we'll be writing a behavior support plan, hopefully upping that proactive support, but making sure that there's, you know, a reactive plan in place um, to keep the person safe when behaviors of concern do occur. Uh, and then our final stage is celebrating. So this is where we've um, achieved, we've made progress, we've achieved uh, the three goals and we're celebrating with the person, we're celebrating with the network, but we're also slowly fading ourselves out um, because we are a short-term service. We're not a long-term service. So a lot of our work, I should have said, it's a very much collaborative model. We're not working in, in silo. Uh, so it's really important that we're taking the network and the person on this journey with us. And then we've got that chance to slowly fade out and just check for maintenance. And we do at the end of our celebrating stage, we do also um, arrange follow-up sessions. How frequent they are will depend on which pathway the person's on. Uh, but essentially that's a chance for us to check in, you know, three or six months after our support's ended, just to check, you know, I think maintaining um do we need to help troubleshoot anything that might have arised um in the time we've been closed so yeah i could talk about the five stage process for ages um but hopefully that gives you <laughs> enough information as to what that kind of journey can look like for the person yeah no no does um i am confused by the letters because <laughs> I, I i can't spell bix with this so help me <laughs> I can jump in yeah. there. It's a, it stands for Behavioral Intensive Community Support Service. So B I C S fix. Yeah. And then um, it is an evidence-based model. So like Lauren mentioned, we are writing a publication on it where we're outlining it and talking about some of our outcomes, but it is based on research by Lavinia and the multi-element behavioral support model, mm. as well as based loosely on um, the Ealing model as well, which has demonstrated some really significant changes for individuals um, with learning disabilities, we would say here in the UK. What the was that second really, one, sorry? Of course, the Ealing model. And what's that? Um, the Ealing model was yeah, a model from... No, Ealing is a region in London. So that okay. was it was based on that region, in that region originally. Uh, it was... Ooh, back in the 90s, aughts, 
Um, They took MEBS and they applied it systematically to support individuals diagnosed with learning disabilities, or Mm. we would say intellectual disabilities in the U.S., um, to work in a community-based setting. All of those individuals also had consistent access to respite support as well. So it's similar to that. And there are some publications on, on the Ealing model that I can send you um, happily. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the difference for us is that, like Lauren mentioned, is we really do highlight that engagement stage. And partly that's because a lot, I would say 99.9% of the individuals that are referred to us are named hard to reach people. They're individuals where honestly the supports around them have failed. Um, and we really do pride ourselves on the ability to go in and slowly establish rapport and make connections and do motivation, motivational interviews um, and different values-based assessments to get to know the people. Um, and I think that's why the, the model is so successful. And that it also um, prior models had not been used with individuals who had single diagnosis of autism as, as much where I would say at least half of the individuals we support are single diagnosis. Mm, really cool. Yeah, the engaging piece sounds really neat. Lauren, you mentioned it's kind of a short-term service. A um, couple questions around that. So just sort of curious, because I think in Canada, it's, we have some similarities in that we don't have the insurance model that the U.S. has. Mm-hmm. But but then again, we don't really have any model. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it varies from province to province. I think that's why. And it's I get it would be different in the UK because the UK is essentially a province um, uh, by this by its size, um, but or a state or whatnot. Uh, but a couple of questions. One is, what do you mean by short term? So how, how much time do you actually have? Yeah, so to be honest, I think the duration has increased uh, even over the three and a half years I've been working at PBSC. Mm. And I think that aligns with the increase in in the complexity of people that we're supporting. So Mm. we are supporting a lot of individuals now who present with um, suicide attempts and suicide ideation. So they tend to be our longer um, standing clients. And I would say on average, we're supporting them for kind of six months or longer from Mm. start to finish of our um, BICS five-stage process. If we're working with someone who doesn't present with those behaviors um, and it's using our more traditional BICS model, uh, then we could be talking like three months start to finish. But I'd say on average, it might be a minimum of three months. Um, I'd say the longest we've ever worked with someone is probably one year. So how much time are you spending Mm -hmm. with with during that three months? Because that doesn't sound like three months. Yeah, so um, we would dedicate around one day per week for our traditional model. So what that would Mm. look like, it doesn't mean that it's like on a Monday, we spend it with this person for eight hours. It's it would be kind of scattered throughout the week based on the needs of the person and what works for them and their network. But it would be, yeah. A, a day a week's worth of work so eight hours um a week and that would look like you know visiting the the person maybe once or twice a week attending their network meetings analyzing their data uh writing up a report so that's mm. kind of the average for oh. our suicide prevention clients we do double up for the first six weeks so it would be two days of input for the first six weeks and then it would drop back down to that that usual model of one day and then how are these things funded in, in your neck of the woods? Yeah, so um it's yeah, I think it's quite different from um from what I've heard from from the USA. Um mm. so how we tend most of our well, all of our big services are commissioned by the local authority. Um so the local authority in certain boroughs um 
will will commission our service and they will ask us to work with a certain amount of people at any one time. So we've got so in some boroughs we might work work with as little as eight individuals. Um, in some boroughs we're working with thirty. Um, mm. In some areas, sorry, we're working with up to thirty individuals in that area. So yeah, the 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 amount of people we work with depends on how how many people we've been commissioned to support. Mm. So so funding. So maybe maybe that's a conversation for another day. But <laughs> about funding. But so funding is is does funding initially come from like the government and then it gets kind of faded out to these sort of counties, boroughs, or whatever you call them. Is that how that works? Yeah, yeah pretty that... much. I'm sorry, Lauren, but yeah, pretty much. No, it's no. all government funding. And then the local boroughs. So London has, oh goodness, you know, probably better than I do how many boroughs we have in London. It's that they're 24 or 34 boroughs. It's a lot. I know we're yeah. I know we're commissioned in 19. And then we mm. offer spot purchase in several others as well. Um so yeah, there's lots of boroughs and each one will set up mm. a, an agreement with us to do so much, you know, support so many individuals. Um, and then if governments don't want to or don't have the resource to set up a contract, they can just refer individuals to us. Um, so that's the majority mm. of the work that we have is funded by government. We also um, will work in school settings. So some uh, schools equivalent in the U.S. to like a public school um, or like a specialist school would fund us to come in and do some either person specific work with students or do some like school wide PBS type support. And then we have a whole arm that goes into providers or residential care settings where the care homes fund us to come in and offer support and training to Mm -hmm. their staff teams. So I would say the majority of our work is still funded by the government, though. Mm, right on. Okay, let's let's kind of jump into the the, the main topic here. Um, now, a year ago, you know, I don't even know that I would have been able to have do this podcast interview. I I used to cringe at sort of any topic, any conversation around suicide. Uh, not because of any sort of you know past trauma that I had or experiences or whatnot, um, although I have had family members and 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 others that have you know um, kind of been been in that area, but um, but it just for whatever reason I it just uh, you know it just it just made me cringe. It was like it was like like seeing blood. Talking about suicide was like seeing blood. I just got woozy for some mm-hmm. reason, um, and. Uh, uh, but then I, 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 uh, recently I, you know, I thought, well, it's time to, it's, it's time to, it's time to deal with that. And, uh, and so I took, um, Dr. Corso's, uh, prosper course and, uh, you know, the first hour or two were, were a bit tough, you know, I had to kind of mute every now and then and go back and forth. But by the end of it, I was feeling pretty good about talking about suicide and, um, so the the reason I kind of give that little that little story is, is 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 in a lot of different ways, you know, whether it be you know from a trauma perspective or from their own experience or from a liability perspective, people don't want to touch suicide with a ten foot pole. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and so that's one part of the question. Um, and then the other side is is that I think you know when it comes to sort of um well actually that that like that's that's the whole side so what 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 made what made uh you know the the bbs consultancy wanna want want to get into suicide 
Yeah, honestly, it wasn't necessarily something we sought out. Mm. It was based on the needs of the individuals that were referred to us. Mm. So it all really came about um, just about two years ago. So it was mm. spring of 2021. We just saw this spike, this uptake, uptick in referrals where the individual's behaviors of concern were either suicide attempts or mm. potential suicide ideation. Mm. And the the um, clinicians, uh, Sarah um, Wakeling, our, our CEO, and Jessica Aviles, our chief clinical officer at that time, were like, okay, we need to support these individuals. Mm. There's not resources that we're familiar with. Um, so they wanted to really look at what evidence-based support could be available for us to learn to then embed within our BICS model to create this BICS suicide prevention model. Mm. So that was purely it. It was purely based on the need of the individuals. And honestly, it's not surprising. If you look at the statistics around suicide in the autism community, people um, on the spectrum are potentially up to seven times more likely to be at risk for suicide. And I think one statistic was something around like 72% of autistic people have been re reported to experience suicide ideation. Wow. So if anything, it's like, surprise is that it took that long um, mm -hmm. for people to recognize that we could support these individuals and do it do it well. What do you think happened in 2021 that you suddenly had a lot more referrals related to suicide? Um, I think it really was once we start to accept a referral and we say, yes, we can do that. People are like, oh, they can do this because mm. we are willing to say yes. Um, and I think that's true with a variety of different um, behaviors and, and sure. presentations. As soon as you start to say yes to something that other people aren't willing to touch, because whether it be taboo or, you know, the risk of holding that individual, um, we became the, the organization that isn't afraid to, to support them and has been successful at supporting them. So I think it's almost like this snowball effect. Once we say mm. well, yes to one referral, they keep coming our way. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, so what what do we we I don't we don't seem to know a lot about suicide um, in, in general, um, mm -hmm. um, let alone um, kind of you know with 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 you know autistic folks and whatnot. So you know, so where did you you, you said you want you, you wanted to find something to kind of embed into your Bix model? So. How, how did you find something? <laughs> well, it was very much a research review where yeah. we're behavior analysts. So that's what we yeah. go to first is we go to the research and we first looked to see um, what evidence-based practices aligned with our philosophy, um, person-centered PBS approach um, that we thought we could embed. And we unfortunately didn't find a lot. There weren't a lot of published research yeah. that was evidence-based for the neurotypical population, let alone for the autistic population. Mm -hmm. There's very, very few. I think there are a couple of studies that are in progress, but nothing that we could really identify until we, we met Kent. And mm. so he, um, Kent Corso, he oversees and helped to develop the proactive reduction of suicide in populations by evidence-based research, which is a bit of a mouthful, so they, they limit it to prosper. Yeah. Um, and so we went on the two-day course, three-day course, and connected with Kent, and he started to consult with us as well. And so we were able to take the elements of the that model 
of, you know, and embedding all of the interviews, the motivational interviews, the risk assessment, the Columbia risk assessment on suicide behaviors, and embed that into our different stages. When it came to our delivering stage, in addition to writing behavior support plans, it's, you know, also embedding crisis response plans. And so by taking all of the research that Kent and his team have developed, and then meshing it with the, the model we had already established with BICS. That's how we created that BICS suicide prevention model. Hmm. And so what, what, do, what does that look like? Because, I mean, I know one thing Kent kept saying when I took the course in, I think it was just in like April, was, um, uh, you know, he said, well, first Kent, Kent points out that there's like 100 suicidologists in the world. So even even the researchers don't want to touch us with a 10 foot pole. Um, and, uh, and 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 he's the only BCBA out of out of the bunch. Um, and so um, and, and he was, you know, and, and and, you know, I was asking him why why you even offer this for two BCBAs, because um, uh, he said, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, most of the stuff doesn't really apply to kind of the work BCBAs are doing. I mean, if you take the course, you'll see quite quickly that. If, as a BCBA, unless a group of you take it together, you're probably going to be the only one in the group. Um, it's going to be mostly social workers and mental health workers and therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists and so on. Uh, folks that are generally working in, you know, kind of a clinic setting, you know, in an office, maybe in a hospital, um, um, you know, down the hall, they get referred from sort of, you know, maybe emergency or whatnot, um, um, or it's part of a medical clinic or something like that. Um, um you know, being available, you're not going to see this as sort of, you know, uh, a behavior analyst kind of working in a clinic or a home or group home or anything like that. And, and so I'm curious what kind of those early conversations were like in, in terms of, uh, uh, of applying this to sort of intellectual disabilities when none, none of, when really that was none of his work. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest, I think the majority of the individuals we support within this model have single diagnosis autism. There are a few mm -hmm. who have a dual diagnosis of autism and intellectual disability, mm -hmm. but the majority are uh, single diagnosis autism. Mm -hmm. And really, um, I think because I already had the PBSC lens of PBS yeah. going into Kent's training, it really aligns beautifully with a lot of the work in acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you go about it from that lens. It may feel a little bit mentalistic. It may feel a bit scary to talk about these things. But if you know that the individual is in crisis, just like other individuals we support are in crisis, and it's really understanding the function of their behavior isn't around access or escape. It's truly this ambivalence, which again, Stephen Hayes talks a lot about in some of his work at acceptance mm -hmm. and commitment therapy around people with eating disorders. Um, so it's it's not too far removed, I don't think, from the work that we do. I just think that whether it be, I hate to say opportunity, but I think it's just the, the opportunity doesn't always present itself right. to practicing behavior analysts in the US because of the, the referral pathways and the criteria Whereas here, people are referred to us because of their hospitalization risk, um, placement breakdown risk. So the catalyst for change is very different. There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting Black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human Expressions gives Black and Brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for black and brown kids 
in educational curricula are clear. Increase self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increase validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. The second secret word is Columbia. And so that's why I think we're seeing some of those individuals. And I think that's why we already had a lot of experience doing some of the work around understanding the individual's values and their reasons for change. The difference within the suicide prevention model is the reason for change is reasons for living um, versus reasons to not want to um, lash out and, you know, still improving quality of life. So maybe before we kind of dive into how you adapted your BICS model, um, um, you could just tell me a little bit about sort of just for folks that maybe, because I know I've, I've been taking the courses, so this is all familiar to me, but maybe just getting some of these terms out of the way. So uh, you talk a lot about sort of, I mean, obviously if someone commits suicide, that's that. Um, but there are, you know, other other sorts of things that kind of happen before you want one thing, the suicidal ideation. I think you mentioned a couple others. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about kind of what all those terms mean. Yeah, definitely. And that's something that we really do, you know, start off our process doing is understanding, you know, which of, of the the thing the words that are, terms that I'll go through um the person is experiencing. The first thing that we want to differentiate between is is someone experiencing suicide ideation, which is, you know, having thoughts of ending one's life and, you know, being a, them being a part of that. So they've they're having thoughts of them enacting their own death mm. versus are they experiencing death ideation, which is thoughts about death, but it doesn't have that suicidal or self-enacted content. And the reason we really need to differentiate between those two is because suicide ideation is reliably resulting in suicide and and is associated with those high levels of of distress, whereas death ideation does not reliably result in suicide. So that's kind of the first key, I guess, understanding that we need to have is, is the person experiencing suicide ideation? The other thing we will look into is, has the person had a a suicide attempt before? Mm. Um, and what we mean by suicide attempt is an intentional self-enacted. It might be an injurious behavior. Um, and But the key thing here for it to be a suicide attempt is that it's with any amount of intent to die. So I think sometimes it gets confused with self-injury. Um, so just mm-hmm. to point out the key difference here is that self-injury can look the same because it's an intentional behavior. It's self-enacted. Mm-hmm. However, the key with self-injury is that it doesn't have that intent to die. So it's it's really that intent to die that that we're looking for. Um, and that's why it's so important that, you know, some of these behaviors, although they're observable, their actual aims and intentions are not. And that's why it's really important that we take time to understand the person and to do these risk assessments with them so we can understand what's going on for them. Um, and, you know, are they experiencing suicide ideation? Just to point out as well, um, people who follow our big suicide prevention model are people who are experiencing suicide ideation and or suicide attempts. So if they're experiencing self-injury or death ideation, they wouldn't um, follow the, the suicide pathway. Okay, so I mean, those are good definitions, but can you give me a couple of examples of, of, of sort of what a death ideation versus a suicide ideation might look like? Because I, I get a feeling they're they're kind of similar. Yeah. I, mean, I even went through sort of what Kent does. A, I think you folks did it at your workshop as well, but Kent does a little bit of 
you know, an activity where you have to kind of pick one or the other. Yeah. I, I got a lot of them wrong. So, mm. so I'm, I'm just sort of some examples and, and sort of how you, how you can kind of tell the difference. Yeah. So death ideation would be if anyone's thinking of death. Um, so for example, someone might say, oh, you know, what would happen if I die? Mm. What are people going to say about me if I die? Or who's going to come to my funeral? They would all be death ideation because their thoughts of death, um, but it doesn't involve the person thinking of themselves as being part of, of them dying, if that makes sense. Mm. So there are some examples of death ideation. Examples of suicide ideation would would be if someone is planning their death. So they might be talking about, you know, that they're going to do a certain behavior with the aim of, of killing themselves mm. um, or that they're imagining that they're going to play a part in their death. Um, so it's really the key thing here really is, is there an, is there a self-enacted content? Is there a plan in place? Mm. Um, and if there are, there are plans, then that, that would be suicide ideation and the person's thinking of suicide versus thinking of death. And I think death ideation is, is quite common. Um, it doesn't mean that, that someone is going to go on to be suicidal. Mm. So I wish I was dead is kind of death ideation. Uh, yeah. Uh, I want to shoot my. I'm I'm going to shoot myself in the head as suicidal ideation. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. 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 And so, I guess that the, that's this is where some, we can kind of get into this. I guess when you start talking about assessment, but so with the suicide attempts, you said there has to be that intent. So how how do you, how do you know if there's an intent? Yeah, I think that's why it's so important to use tools such as motivational interviewing, to, mm. to use tools such as the Columbia uh, Risk Assessment, because it's actually asking those things. And I think, mm. you know, it's a common, it's quite a common misconception that if you talk about suicide with someone, it might lead to their suicide. However, right. I, I know what Kent's research mentions and, and what we found is that the only way to help someone who is suicidal is to understand what they're going through. You know, they are the expert in their own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to, uh, we, we really, there's only so much we can observe. So we can obviously see, see what they're, what behaviors they're engaging in, um, what the functions t- tend to be, what the triggers are. But we can only get so far sometimes in terms of what we can observe. And, and sometimes we do need to, you know, speak with the person and understand what are they experiencing? What is going on for them mm. internally? Um, I mean, sometimes they might be saying things outwardly and obviously then we can we can pick up on that. But other times it it might not be might not be the case. So, yeah, we really need to rely on those tools. Before we kind of get into it even some more, I just want one, one more question. Susan, you mentioned, you know, we, you started taking these cases on, so you started getting more after that. What was kind of happening before that? So where, where were the, where, where were autistic folks who were engaging in sort of suicidal ideation or attempting suicide? What was sort of the, the option in the UK? I think it actually still is the option for many individuals who aren't referred to services like ours Mm. is um, if they are uh, a risk, if they've attempted suicide, they're hospitalized, um, which is similar to what we see in other countries. Um, If they're talking about it, they would be referred to a mental health professional. So here it's called CAMS for children. Um, And then there's also adult mental health services. And so they would be referred to a mental health professional with whom they may or may not be able to engage based on traveling to an office location, mm. develop, you know, establishing rapport, their understanding of autism. Some of them are obviously are autism professionals um, and 
I'm sure that we're not the only successful, you know, professionals mm. who are supporting individuals. Um, so, but those are the other options that are typically available. And we do work collaboratively with other professionals too, I must say. Yeah, yeah. And 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 so I can also wonder about sort of the death ideation, because I get a feeling that when people are saying, you know, I, you know, I want to die, I want to kill myself or I want to whatever. Um, and it's not, you know, actually suicidal ideation. Are, are they still getting if, if, if folks were saying that in the past, would folks still then end up getting referred to sort of mental health professionals and hospitals and whatnot? Like are folks is the general world sort of afraid, uh, just as afraid of death ideation as they are of suicidal ideation, I guess, is kind of the question. From my experience, yes, they still are being referred to to mental health professionals. Um, I don't. It would really be if the family is at such such um, ends that they take their child to to A and E to hospital to get support. Um, it would most likely be if they were assessed and deemed to pose a risk to themselves that they would be admitted to hospital for something like death ideation. Mm-hmm. We will sometimes still have referrals to for um to, for children, young people, and adults who are believed to be exhibiting uh, suicide ideation. But when we go in and we do our assessments, we, uh, from like Lauren mentioned us using things like the Columbia risk assessment, we determine that actually is more like death ideation, that they aren't making plans. They aren't talking about killing themselves. They're talking about death. And we would still support those people. It it would just mean that they'd probably access our more, um, our original BIC service. So we would still track those behaviors. Mm. Um, you know, we might still teach the person like self-management skills or emotional regulation skills if that's in line with them having those thoughts and feelings. So it's definitely not something that we would ignore. Mm. It just wouldn't need um, the suicide prevention model is obviously set up with the aim of of preventing suicide. And because that person isn't at, at that risk level, uh, it just wouldn't mean that they'd need that intensive intensive package at, at that point. But we, w- we would still support them to some extent. Exactly. And we would be doing a, fun- a more traditional functional behavior assessment mm-hmm. on those behaviors mm-hmm. to then develop a function-based approach. And I think the difference is within the suicide prevention model, we are under the understanding that the function is wanting to die and this ambivalence around living and dying that Kent talks about within the PROSPER training. Um, and so that's why it really is a function-based approach. And that's the difference, true, too, between why we would treat suicide ideation differently than death ideation. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And and does death ideation at all predict suicidal ideation, or or is that that's not something that I've seen any research supporting, mm. and we haven't seen it in our more anecdotal data. Mm. Mm. No, yeah, death ideation doesn't um, reliably lead to suicide ideation. Mm. Um, but suicide ideation does, as we said, people can fluctuate between di and si. Um, as well. So that's important to to um, point out. And people who do experience SI will or will also experience DI. So mm. I guess DI can occur on its own, whereas SI will occur with DI. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So maybe if you do hear DI or whatever, it, it's something you might watch for. Def- um, it's definitely still worth, yeah, but not keep, like keeping track yeah. of. Yeah, for sure. Right, right, right. All right, so Lauren, the Bix being 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 your thing, maybe a little bit. Of, tell, tell us how kind of how you how Bix changed for for suicide. 
Yeah, definitely. So the key differences between the BICS model and the BICS SP model, it still follows the same five stages that I mentioned before. Um, so the key differences I think I've mentioned are one, the intensity. So we front load the support and we um, double up on the intensity. And that's just because of you know, how risky these behaviors are. We want to be front loading and kind of getting that risk level lowered as soon as possible. We also um, provide another key difference is that we provide our um, third and fourth stages kind of alongside each other. Mm. So that's our understanding stage, which is our functional behavior assessment and our delivery stage, um, which is our intervention. And again, just because of the level of risk, it you know it doesn't feel right to spend five weeks assessing the reason for someone's behavior when they're engaging in suicide attempts. You know, we need to start working on things um as soon as possible so although we although we will be doing a functional behavior assessment to look at the bigger picture um we will also be starting a crisis response plan with the person um because kent's research and and the research done around crisis response planning shows that an effective crisis response plan can reduce suicide attempts by up to 76 percent so you know we want to get that in place as soon as possible really um, so I'd say they're the key key differences. So that's so that is something you can do without an FBA because I know I know that's sort of something that a lot of the behavior analysts listening will will ask about is uh, and and some of them may have already cringed when they heard you're going to do intervention and FBA at yeah. the same time. <laughs> how, how, how dare you, sacrilege! <laughs> um, um, uh, so I, I'm curious. Well, I guess it, it makes sense how that works because the crisis response plan is something is something you can do sort of independent of an FBA and and as Kent's models, I mean Kent's folks aren't doing FBAs; they're just doing crisis response plans um, and then maybe going into you know other sort of therapeutic modalities, sort of you know when the folks not are in that kind of suicide mode that Kent describes. Um, what do you mean by doubling the intensity? Like what what does what does that look like? Yeah, so it is literally just instead of providing one day of input a week, we'll provide two days of input a week for the first six weeks. Um, and that's to allow us to not only do that functional behavior assessment, but also have the time to do that crisis response mm. plan as well. So that's yeah, that that's what that looks like. That's one and one. Okay, so what uh maybe we talk a little bit about what that crisis response plan might look like i know i know some folks in pbs are just in sort of in general kind of working with you know more severe challenging behaviors are familiar with sort of safety planning um mm-hmm. and you know uh and, and and often those are even called kind of crisis intervention plans and in fact i think a lot of susan i'm sure i'm sure when you were in the field early on in, in 2000 that's right around when i kind of started in the field a lot of the folks that I saw were only using crisis intervention as sort of their mode of intervention. So, you know, maybe NVCI or, or MANT or those other kind of courses, that was all the training folks had and that's all they did. And often things were, you know, there was some preventative stuff built in there, but for the most part, they were pretty reactive, often restraint focused and so on and so forth, seclusion, those, those sorts of things. And, um, um, and I think today safety plans are, you know, are still kind of, reactive tools to do to sort of have in place when folks are engaging in behaviors that are just you know dangerous and so there's a point where you know you can no longer just uh, you know um uh, you know 
remove a demand because you know the, the individuals you know about to run into traffic or or, mm-hmm. or 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 hurt people and you've got to have something in place to sort of um, keep everyone safe and so that's where those safety planning come in is that what a crisis response plan or is that something different what, what's that what's that look like it's actually quite different and i'm glad mm-hmm. that you're bringing this up because even in the states even as just as of the past couple of years um we would still use the term crisis response plan as a very reactive heavy when the behaviors are at yeah. this escalation where it's just you know, we would say strategic capitulation. So what can you do to shut the behavior down to keep everybody mm. as safe as possible? And then do you need to use restrictive practices and things like that? Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. In the UK, when it comes to suicide, they will often, you will often see people developing safety plans. Um, and they're called that here. So safety plans are typically, again, once somebody is escalated to the point of being at risk for attempting to to kill themselves or really a high level suicide ideation where they can't shut it off and they can't think of anything else um, is very reactive. With the crisis response plans, and this is all based on the work by Kent and Prosper, Mm. it's really breaking down what are the the triggers, what are slow triggers, what are fast triggers, um, how do people realize when they're starting to get into this suicide ideation mode Um, Even for some individuals where suicide ideation mode doesn't turn on and off, but it's really identifying when is it high, when is it low, and then identifying coping strategies that they can engage in when they're starting to feel it kind of amping up. So if the dial is turning up or if it's turning on, what are some things that they can do to take care of themselves? And that's where Mm. a lot of the motivating motivating interviews um, and values-based interviews come into play. So for some people, it's, you know, maybe I take a shower, take a walk, I Mm. spend time with my dog. One young um, young girl like to put makeup on. Um, so what are some things that you can do um, besides just, you know, taking five deep breaths and counting to right. 10 to really shift shift your mood? And it's mood induction, really what we're, we're trying to go for right then. Then we, we identify if that's not effective, if you can't be independently self-regulating, how can you seek out somebody else to help you? So who are some people in your sphere, loved ones that you trust? that you can go to to talk about this? Can you text your mom? Can you call your best friend? Um, is there somebody in like the, the care home that you're living in that you trust that you can go and say, I need some help? And then how can they then help you to take a walk, do something different to get you back to a safer state? Mm-hmm. And the third stage is true, what we would think of as crisis plans. It's, you know, who do you call um, if you then can't, like, what are the suicide hotline numbers? Do you need to call 999 here or 911 in the States to mm. call for help if you feel like you're going to be taking yourself to like train tracks or something like that soon? Mm. So that's pretty much what the crisis response plan is. And while we don't do a functional behavior assessment to develop it, it's all based on first looking at through the Columbia risk assessment, is this suicide ideation, suicide attempts or not? So we're doing that type of function. And then it's doing a lot of motivating interviews, a lot of risk assessments to identify the triggers for them, identify um, some of the consequences that help them deescalate. So there is a bit of contingency analysis within that as Mm -hmm. well. It's just not your traditional FBA by any means. Mm -hmm. So keep talking about this Columbia risk assessment. What is this thing? (laughs) Yeah, so it's, oh, sorry, Susan. No, please go ahead. Um, Yeah, so it's a tool that we can use and the aim is that it's quite a quick tool and it has a number of questions. Um, And the aim really is that we come away from that knowing 
firstly, has there been a suicide attempt in the past? Mm -hmm. And what has that looked like? And we'll look into what was the most recent attempt um, and what did that look like? And it also asks what was the worst attempt? And I guess that gives us an idea of, yeah, well, what's how bad has it got um is basically what what that tells us mm. it then also asks about like current how the person is currently feeling in that moment whether they're experiencing you know suicide ideation at that time and how often they might be experiencing that um so yeah it's just it's a really good tool for us to understand it, it kind of breaks it down into uh, is the person experiencing just death, death ideation at which point we can stop is the person experiencing, um, has the person experiencing suicide, sorry, has the person experienced suicide attempts, mm. at which point we can learn about those, those two, the, the most recent and, and the worst attempt. And then it's looking at their kind of current suicide ideation as well. And, and what that's currently feeling like for them. So it's a really quick tool. Um, well, it can be quick. It obviously depends on the person and, mm. and how, how they feel around doing that. Um, we have found with some of our clients that it has taken longer because they might only want to answer a couple of questions, um, you know, every time. And sometimes understandably people don't feel comfortable sharing this information mm. until we've built a rapport with them. Um, so I would say that we've, we've gone from it literally being done in 10 minutes with someone and them being very responsive and, and open and honest to it taking, you know, a, a couple more weeks. Um, and you know, that's, Obviously, we, you know, the key thing here is that we we need to maintain that rapport and and be led by the person on how far they can go. So quite often, we'll be making sure that, you know, that there is a code word or that there's a way for them to escape the situation, um, in whichever way works best for them, so that we're not pushing them to a point of of kind of disengagement. So, so what, what do you do with that info? I mean, obviously, if you just find out it's just death ideation, then you kind of just go to sort of regular old traditional approach but you you they you you see that they've attempted or have ideation or and and, and you now know their their worst attempt or whatever or maybe their closest or whatever that that looks like what's the value in kind of knowing that i think it's to know kind of well for one if someone's experienced two or more attempts we know that they're more likely to um attempt suicide again mm. um and if they have never experienced a suicide attempt we therefore maybe have more opportunity to stop that from progressing to that point so i guess it's it's seeing how far they've got um but then it also allows us to kind of be aware of like the history as well so that we can support in things like risk assessing um so that we can start to think about what the topographies of the behavior look like um for our so it's it's really key information for our functional behavior assessment uh but also for our crisis response plan so that we can we can be starting to look at you know what what are the triggers for these behaviors what do these behaviors tend to look like um what coping strategies might the person have tried before that have been effective or that haven't been effective mm. so i think it's just it's giving us that that information that that we need um it won't be a case that we'll just do that one tool and then we won't find out anything else we will then go on to do our more in-depth functional behavior assessment but it gives us that that first kind of view on what is going on for this person and essentially do they need to access our suicide prevention uh pathway and, and that makes sense and so if um 
like if if either way that you know so say say it's they've they've had no attempts so that means it's great you can do some do some do some maybe do some different things like what 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 are the different things going to be like is, is the crisis response plan look different for the person that's attempted a few times versus the person that hasn't not necessarily i think one of the key differences is that we'd be looking at planning with the network in terms of keeping the is this person safe um, do we need to put in any any further kind of safety measures or hmm. restrictions with the aim I of see. reducing those restrictions? So I think that is probably one of the key differences, hmm. I would say, be- between someone who's had suicide attempts versus someone who's experiencing suicide ideation. So, so either way, you're going to use the same tool as far as um, the crisis response plan. But, but if, yeah. if it's a lot more severe, then it might be, well, then... You know, for for person A, we might not have to put all the knives and medication away and 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 and, and keep the keep the car out of the garage. Whereas for person B, we're we're actually going to have to you know think about you know means of of, mm. of of killing oneself and and dealing with some of those things as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right, and it's it feels uncomfortable sometimes to ask those questions about what did it look like? What were the means that you've tried to use? But it's mm-hmm. really important for, for risk assessment and risk mitigation for us to know that, to do those, those exact things. So mm-hmm. if we know that somebody has a history of attempts with ligatures, we need to have, you know, ligature cutters easily available, locked away, but easily mm-hmm. accessible for whoever's caring for them. Um, we've had some, you know, young people where their phone chargers are kept in common spaces, not in their bedrooms. So there are shifts that we can do to their, you know, daily routines to still make sure they have access to things that they would want and need without feeling like they're under lockdown, but also keeping them safe. And so putting in things like medication locks, locks on cabinets and drawers, making sure that people are supervised when they're using things that have historical means um, being supervised if they're out in the community on their own. Sorry, just that phone charger's example, is that sort of like for, for hanging themselves? Is that what you mean? Like, why would you put a phone charger away? Or is that why? Yeah. It's for tying a ligature around one's neck. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and so so again for the folks that don't have those, you you might not need to put all those restrictions in place. Which exactly, which which makes sense. That's cool. All right. Um, so this all sounds awesome, um, uh, but again, um, you know, suicide is is you know it's you know it's a one and done activity. Um, 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 and and it's scary and and it's something that folks don't want to touch because i think you know generally speaking beyond you know putting them in a rubber room or whatever you know there hasn't really been interventions that can work so i'd like to hear a bit about kind of um that you started this in 2021 it's 2023 so you must have had some success um so i'd like to kind of hear about how this model's been working for you Ahead, yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. So yeah, since we began the model in mm. March 2021, um, we've got lots of individual data and our next step is going to be to kind of, you know, amalgamate everyone's data and, and get those, again, something we would love to publish about. Mm. Um, but yeah, in terms of the kind of demographics of the people that we've been supporting, we've supported 73 individuals to date um, wow. in, in this model in the past two, just over two years. Uh, we've supported individuals um, 
ages ranging from eight years old to 38 years old. Mm. And our average age range does tend to be teenagers of around yeah. 16. Um, as we said earlier, the primary diagnosis of people we've supported has been ASD. So that's been around 82% of the individuals we've supported. We have supported also some individuals with ASD and LD, um, LD only, and we have supported a handful of people without um, a diagnosis as well. Mm -hmm. The majority of individuals we've supported, or 51%, have been female, um, 37% have been male so far and 12% have been non-binary or identified as, as non-binary when we've asked about um, gender. So mm. we only currently record gender. We don't ask about sexual identity or anything True. like that currently. Um, but we are still seeing that, that the number of non-binary individuals we're supporting is increasing. Mm. Um, and I guess that is in line with, with the research, which suggests that Autistic people are, you know, seven to eight times more likely to identify as part of the LGBTQIA yes. plus community over their non-autistic peers. Um, so I think we would imagine that that we'll see um, more non-binary individuals mm. um, accessing our big suicide prevention model. And in terms of the the gains, um, we have been very fortunate to have had a hundred percent success rate today. Wow. Um, which we're very proud of and realistically and honestly, we probably didn't expect. I think, um, yeah, given given the statistics, um, it's not they're not always great, to be honest, with with prevention of suicide. Um, so, yeah, we're, we are really proud of that. But we do, of course, have measures in place for for if that that does that isn't the case in in the future. Mm -hmm. So that's awesome. One hundred percent. So. Is success just they haven't killed themselves or is there more to that? Um, for that 100% success rate, that is that they haven't killed themselves. Mm. But we also are measuring things like improvements in their quality of life, mm. decrease in restrictions. Um, so I think one of the reasons why we have such a high success rate is we're not just looking at decreasing suicide intent and decreasing suicide attempts, we mm. are using PBS strategies and increasing quality of life. Um, so we are doing values-based assessments with all of the individuals we're working with to look at their reasons for living and then setting them goals to help move closer and closer towards them. Um, mm. So for example, over the past year, we were supporting one young woman. Um, she was 19 when we first started working with her. And when we first started, she had a history of about five attempts across uh, same, uh, about one a month on average, about five wow. attempts in the, across five months. Um, when we started to work with her, we found that she had a really significant trauma history. She was out of school for quite some time, um, had a very limited sphere. She had really realistic goals of wanting to um, have a boyfriend and wanting mm. to go to college and things that other teenagers should be looking for. But the way that she framed it was she didn't just want a boyfriend. She wanted to be a porn star. And so it's really just kind of teaching her to reframe um, through this model. We not only reduced her suicide to zero rates across several months, but we also helped her get onto a college course. Um, we also helped her develop friendships. Um, develop a better relationship with her family, taught her family how to support her when she was in need. Mm -hmm. So I think it's this combination of using the tools that we've learned from Kent and the Prosper series, but also just all of the, the good work that PBS does in improving quality of life of individuals. So that's the success, you know, for her, she's at college, 
She doesn't want to be a porn star. She wants to be in a loving relationship. She wants mm. to, you know, maybe get a job working at her local library. So those are the things that we measure as successes are um, mm. her improved quality of life, not mm. just the the decrease in the behavior. And and do do you also that's awesome. Do you also see then do you see like a decrease in in the suicidal ideation too, or or does that go away entirely? Or what's that been looking like for those cases? Yeah, for some people, suicide ideation will also come down to zero. And that's our goal is mm. um, I know in the research it's zero uh, across 30 days is what our aim is. For mm. some people, we realize if they've had a decade or more of having the suicide mode turned on, mm. it's turning it down. And that we have to be realistic that we're still looking for zero attempts across at least 30 days, preferably mm -hmm. 60, mm -hmm. and then suicide ideation turning down. And again, looking at mood induction to see, mm -hmm. are there moments of joy, moments of wanting to live? And mm -hmm. are those increasing throughout their day? And are, or are they constantly having that thought in the back of their heads? Mm -hmm. um, so there's only been a few individuals over the past few years where I've known that when we did close, we did realize that their suicide ideation mode hadn't been turned off completely, that it was still active, but we felt that they had the tools in place to handle it. They could cope mm. with that. They had a network of people around them that could support them. The crisis response plan was effective at keeping them alive. Mm. That's awesome. Um, so... This sounds great, uh, but I got a feeling that for some folks, you know, well, A, this might not work, um, mm -hmm. um, or B, you know, I think folks are just afraid that it won't work. I think that's probably the the bigger thing. So I kind of just want to talk about sort of, um, you know, some of the barriers and and maybe even some of the myths here that we can kind of start dispelling for folks. Um, um First, I'm just curious about sort of some some of the barriers to sort of, you know, doing this work and getting people to do this work. Um, and then I want to finish off by kind of talking about like, what do you what do you do if someone does die? Because that I think that's that's a that I think that's the biggest fear for folks. I think one thing I, I learned from sort of Kent's course, you know, and, and as you mentioned, that 76 percent number is just it's amazing. I mean, um, to have sort of 76 percent of folks who are. Uh, in that suicide mode, um, 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 you know, kind of come out of it and uh, and and be able to go on is is just is just mind blowing and not something I think folks would would a number of folks would ever I think attach to sort of you know this this kind of context. Um, were 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 there barriers for for you folks in terms of um, you know well a kind of getting this program started and getting people to kind of want to do this uh and and then and then you know maybe just barriers in general for sort of implementing this stuff mm -hmm. as far as the referrals i don't really feel like we had barriers people were happy to find somebody who was willing to do the work and willing to mm -hmm. help right. um and i think we already had a long-standing relationship with the the referring bodies the commissioners on supporting people with self-harm mm -hmm. and other really severe behaviors and stepping people down from hospital so mm -hmm. i think there was a lot of trust there um, mm -hmm. and we did do the the work to show the evidence base in it um i think when we see barriers there are barriers as far as you know the individuals who are holding these cases 
Mm-hmm. So we are very protective of our staff. We make sure that the training that they go through is extremely robust. Mm. We have limits to how many suicide prevention cases each of our staff can hold. Mm, um, that's and, that's a, and that's a sliding scale. It's not just, you know, at two. It's right. based on the severity of the case. Is it a, a case where suicide attempts are active? Or is it where there is a history of suicide ideation? Um, so the risk level is a little bit lower. And then oh. also we look at the individual resilience and we know that that also fluctuates, but um, we have th- some individuals where they have maybe family history, friends, where this was something that they went through. And so we realized that they're gonna be a little bit more sensitive um, and their resilience might not be as as high as somebody who um, has done this a few times and has seen some successes. So we take all of those things into play. Um, We offer debriefs after every visit. We tend to pair up our staff. So we don't have just one person holding a case. We like to um, have people co-treat or tag teams that they are going through, going through it together, supporting people together. Um, And then we also set up a fortnightly surgery where people can bring these cases and discuss and get clinical support from, I typically lead it along with Lauren um, or one of our other service leads who is heavily involved in our suicide prevention model. So a lot of training, a lot of support. Um, just as an organization, we offer things like a, a well-being hour each month, or sorry, each week, excuse me. So I think as a as an organization in general, we're very, very mindful of staff well-being and particularly with, with this or this. Um, so that's one barrier that I feel like we've done a good job mitigating. Another one that we do often see is around the network. Um, sometimes there's a lack of professionals around this individual. Mm. People um, aren't uh, available or aren't engaged. Sometimes there's a lack of readiness. Um, some you know, families may be a little bit anxious. Um, maybe they're, they're in hospital and they're not ready to have the support to, to work on stepping down. Mm. Um, and then like Lauren mentioned earlier, we do see a little bit of this taboo about talking about it. Um, typically, we see that a lot more from, from families or from the network where they think that talking about it are going to um, evoke an attempt or increase suicide mm-hmm. ideation. But actually, we see quite the opposite. Um, and the Prosper Training supports that talking about it doesn't increase it. If anything, it gives the individual a safe space and it makes sure that they know that there are people available that they can reach out to when they are having these thoughts and feelings. Um, and I think that that by openly talking about it, it makes the the model actually be more successful well that's awesome uh and i love i love all the things you have in place for your staff can you tell me a little bit more about what this well-being hour is that sounds cool yes i know i love it um so it's a dedicated hour every thursday from nine to ten um we get to choose what we want to do for our own well-being um you know we can move it around if that's not the best time for us but um our ceo has a, a physio, uh, um, a personal trainer. So we can jump on and do an online boot camp. I know Lauren's a fan of that. Mm. I um, will often choose to sit in my garden, have a cup of coffee with my dog on my lap, which is very mm. relaxing and, you know, mindful for me. Um, mm. People might choose to go on a mindful walk, read, do yoga. It's really anything that an individual wants to do to just take care of themselves. And it's mm. a dedicated time each week that we, we really are proud of um, ensuring our staff access. That's awesome. All right, let's get into the probably the biggest barrier, at least that I've seen and certainly that I've had for a lot of years um, um, to, to doing this work is, and, and that's, and, and that's liability, mm-hmm. um, sort of this, you know, this fear that, um, you know, if this individual dies, 
in my care or in my service that I'm going to somehow be held responsible for that or potentially be sued for that or, or, or whatever. And, and you'd think that, you know, generally speaking, you know, folks are suicidal, that there'd be an understanding that, you know, it, it's not anyone else. It's not anyone's sort of, you know, fault, you know, for, for kind of causing that there's a whole other, you know, I mean, it's, it, 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 it you know, it, not to blame the individual, but it is a self-inflicted, um, you know, um, 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 death. So it's not like someone else actually did it to them. Um, um, but I think there's a fear that, you know, I said I could take care of this person and I didn't and they died or or whatnot. And, and, and then someone, a family member might say, well, we should have had kept Billy in the hospital. You said you could do something about this you didn't um and uh and you know now there's gonna be a problem and this seems to be the main reason why i think a lot of folks don't want to talk don't want to even get into suicide that's why there's only 100 suicidologists on the planet um yeah. um um how have you dealt with all that i mean that must have been a thing that's that had that that came up um to be honest, I don't know if it's just a different culture. We're not mm. as litigious as the Americans are. Mm. Um, it's it is a different culture, honestly. Mm. And also, also, we don't do this alone. We're one person within a network, and so mm. I think because we aren't sole workers, we're working alongside social care, mental health professionals, the GP, the parents, sometimes the school, the individual themselves. Mm. That we are a member of a team, and so we're not solely holding risk. We mm. do often also do very, very thorough risk assessments, and we're very open about those with all of people involved, and we make sure that they have a voice in the risk assessments so they feel mm. comfortable in how much risk we're holding. Mm. Um, and I think having those pieces around us, it just made us feel comfortable to, to take that, to take that chance, to take that risk of supporting these individuals. Um, if not... The risk would still be there. We just mm. wouldn't be able to support them and to engage mm. them and to help them kind of move towards their their goals and their values and away from these suicidal thoughts. Um, we do have a postvention policy in place. It's mm. something that we had to develop. And in my mind, I didn't develop it in the mindset of litigation. I developed it in the mindset of how do I support my staff? How do I support the families? Mm. Because there is this idea of suicide being contagious. Um, mm. And I wanted to make sure that we had a really robust policy in place for how it be communicated. So people heard respectfully. It wasn't something that was, you know, talked about and somebody heard from somebody else that there was a really clear message of how people were informed, how the people around them, but also anybody else who could be vulnerable heard about it because mm. it is a, a difficult thing to talk about even when we're doing it, um, mm. and that we had access to resources. So the National Suicide Prevention Alliance here in the UK has some amazing resources. Um, and then there's also a group called Survivors of Bereavement by Suicide. So we wanted mm. to make sure that we had those specific tools available to our staff, to the families, to anybody in the network. So that way they had support and they knew that they weren't going through it alone. Mm. And I think all of those fears of um, litigation and anger and blaming, it comes from grief. And I respect mm. that. But if we have the tools to support people through the grieving process, and they see that we are just as saddened and disheartened and heartbroken as they are, that we mm. can help and kind of move through it together. It's a different attitude to take. Mm. Cool. 
Uh, right on. Um, but yeah, I mean that works for me. I mean that that's and and, and of course you haven't had you haven't had to use this yet. No, we have not had yeah. to use it yet. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Very superstitious behavior analyst touching wood. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. So uh, you talked about uh, kind of uh, um, doing some work to kind of get this out to the world. So what what are you looking at in, in the future here for, for this work? 73 is awesome. I imagine it's going to keep going up. Uh, but uh, um, how are you going to spread the love? The third secret word is crisis. Yes. So as Lauren mentioned, we are in the process of um, submitting one paper for publication. It's under review right now. Mm. That's on our BICS model um, solely. And then we're now looking at once that's completed, uh, looking at some outcomes data specifically on our BICS SP model. And mm. the same thing, like doing a concept paper about what it looks like what the different stages look like and including some of the data so that we see. So that way we can share it and have it add to the evidence base of uh, tools available to support autistic people who are, are suffering. Have you been involved at all or are you hoping to be involved at all in, in training anyone else outside of the, the PBS consultancy and doing any of this work? You know, that's probably where we are worried about holding the most risk, honestly. It's mm -hmm. because we feel very confident in our internal training procedures. It's training others to do it where we worry about somebody maybe not doing it exactly as we would want to. Mm -hmm. So that's where we try to, we're, we're, we're opening up the idea of it. We're not there yet. But we think that that probably will be something we look down down the road. I think once mm -hmm. we have some publication behind us that would support that. Um, and then once we have, uh, that kind of training model developed, it would have to be very, very robust. And we'd yeah. have to have some safeguards in place to be able to do that to a point where we could pass it along. Um, so that's something down the road in the future, maybe in like a year or two, I would think. Well, well you um, folks seem to be really good at risk management uh, we you know, are, yeah. for this sort of thing. And, and it makes sense to have, you know, you want to have a bunch of published stuff that sort of says, if you do it this way, it's, it's you got a lot better chance of it working. If you start tweaking it or slacking off or, or, exactly. or missing details, you know, and whatnot. And, and, uh, and then you also have something to fall back on. And if, if it's just folks that weren't paying attention or, or whatever, and you're probably going to need a lot of practical components as well, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, you know, and role-playing and I imagine it would be a quite a intensive, um, 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 sort of thing. So, uh, mm -hmm. but, you said you're you said you're the one of the largest uh, PBS organizations in 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 the UK in the UK. So, um, how, how how big is that? I'm just, the reason I ask is is because it, it it seems like you know maybe at least at this point in the game, you know you might not need to train a whole bunch of other agencies if if the biggest one in town is is doing this work. Yeah, um, we're quickly always recruiting. So I want to yeah. say we're about 60, 65 employees mm -hmm. at this time. Oh, wow. Um, and majority are behavior analysts. Oh, that's awesome. That's right. Yeah. So for the UK, you know, given yeah. our size, it's, yeah. it's pretty substantial. No, you're you're one of my few guests that uh, that that were so kind enough to send me talking points instead of me sending you talking <laughs> points, which I love. And, and, and to all the future guests out there, send me talking points. I love it. Um, there's one talking point in here that um, you know that I didn't 
I don't even I don't know anything about it. So it's the very last one. And you said you, you put in future directions how to apply model to other manifest manifestations of ambivalence. Maybe maybe talk a little bit more about kind of what how how ambivalence sort of fits into all this because that's what the Prosper model is really sort of seems to be really based on is this this idea that uh, essentially you know if folks haven't killed themselves yet you know there there you know there's a reason for that um mm -hmm. and and we need to we need you know we need we need to capitalize on that and and that's kind of what the crisis response plan applies to and that's what this sort of suicide mode is and all and so on and so forth so what 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 do you mean about other manifestations of ambivalence like yeah. like, I don't, like i don't feel like going for a walk today no, so I think you're exactly right that through Prosper, we've learned that the, for lack of a better word, the function often mm. is this ambivalence toward living and dying. Mm. Um, and this manifestation of ambivalence is seen within the autistic community in other areas. So one example is within eating disorders. And that's something mm. that I'm really passionate about. Um, and so what we see autistic people don't progress. There is very minimal success within eating disorder treatment and support for autistic people with eating disorders mm. because they're not addressing this underlying ambivalence about wanting to change their behavior. So it's not necessarily mm. living or dying is the, the thing that they're ambivalent about. It's behavior change at all and that they don't really see any motivation or value in changing their behavior. Um, mm. So I think we can take this underlying idea of value-based um, interventions and supporting individuals using acceptance and commitment therapy and apply some of these elements of a, a crisis response plan to somebody, for example, who has an eating disorder. Mm, gotcha. And that's just something that that you're kind of looking at doing. You have, This is not something you've seen other folks. No, and this is a purely Susan thing. This isn't even a PPSC thing yet. Right, I have, right, right. No, I, um, <laughs> I have a personal connection to it. So um, not me personally, I have a, very, a good friend who has been yeah, suffering. Yeah. Um, so it's something that I feel very passionate about. And I see that we have the tools. It just need to do a little bit more of the research and the legwork. But there are, some, some re there are other people out there who have been doing it. Um, there are some, uh, some clinics in the States. Um, the names are escaping me at the moment. So yeah. it really would be looking at that and then seeing how we can embed it within a PBS framework. Yeah. Now... I know you just said, you know, there's a lot of concerns around liability and uh, and and so feel free to not answer this question. Uh, but, um, you know, there's folks that are going to be listening and, and want to kind of start looking at sort of how they can, you know, support clients that are engaging in more suicidal behaviors. Because I do I, 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 I do think it's not just. I don't have the data here but uh, but just from my own anecdotal experience i don't think it's just that you folks decided to start taking on more cases that are getting more referrals it does seem like there are more like like our agency is starting to get more referrals around suicide more than we've had before um and we've never said we're we're into we're into working in this area you know and whatnot um uh we we we've started to say it a little bit because we have started to do some of the prosper work and whatnot and we're we're you know i think we're looking at kind of you know, getting closer to some of the stuff you folks are doing, but no, by no means have we, you know, announced that we are now the the suicide people of of, of British Columbia. Um, uh, but we are seeing a lot more. We're getting we're getting referrals for folks that 
for other behaviors and then finding out the suicide ideation is in there and, and it wasn't sort of brought up um um uh, you know and some of it seems to be kind of connected to the pandemic um mm-hmm. in that you know there was a lot you know with with you know a lot of isolation and, and and loneliness and a lot of things that kind of came up for folks um and uh you know and sort of just getting back into the world has created you know you know some things staffing issues we've had lots of staffing turnover as a result of the pandemic um for a bunch of different reasons um and of course you know in, in these sort of residential settings when you have you know staff constantly you know moving in and out that can really have an effect on the individuals and really make them feel like no one wants to be around them and so on and so forth um so point being i, I do think that this is I, I would guess that this is coming up for a lot of folks um, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and and they're going to want to start thinking about doing some things. Do you folks have any kind of recommendations in terms of, you know, and again, I'm not asking you to, to, to teach everything you're doing, but it, it, in terms of where, where folks can kind of start. I, I, would, I would say s- start with Prosper. I'm sorry, Lauren. Were you yeah. going to say the same thing? <laughs> no, no, yeah. Read my mind. Exactly the same. But I think Prosper is a really good place to start, isn't it? That's exactly where we started and it was extremely useful. I think, have you done the, you've done the course as well, Ben? I've done the course. And and, and one thing I love about, so a couple of things that Kent says that I think are, uh, Kent's awesome. Um, and he's really awesome at presenting this stuff. And he, and he you know, and he's, he's a funny guy too. Um, and, uh, but one thing he's, you know, he says, kind of right away and he really drills in is um is 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 the research that's out there and available and he really he makes a point of uh emphasizing how long it takes for research in 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 a certain area to get to the general public and 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 the number was around 30 years for you know evidence-based practice to really make it to sort of the general area and so so then he said, so if you look at suicide prevention, we're basically, you know, just we're basically using research from the 90s right now. Um, um, and uh, but what we know is that that uh, most of that research isn't, you know, you know, um, or most of that sort of that practice isn't isn't all that helpful. And he also goes on to say that uh, something like 10 percent of, of mental health professionals on the planet are using actual evidence based you know, uh, methods for, for suicide. Uh, and so point, so he really wants, he's, he's really trying to speed that 30 year number up, um, and, and get this information out to people. The Prosser model is, is not just Kent, like it's, it's other folks as well. Um, um, and, uh, you know, and it's really awesome. So what, what I love that Kent does is, is he offers this course almost every month, if not every other month. Um, and, what he also does is, and I've already talked about how cheap it is to take the course, but what he also does is he offers a, anyone who's taken the course can take it again mm-hmm. for free. Mm-hmm. Could do another round to kind of drill that in. So I took it twice because I was like, yeah, I want, you know, this, this is really important stuff. And uh, so, yeah, really, I really, I hear you. I really highly recommend going the Kent route, but I, I did want to hear it from you folks as well. Um, uh, so that's awesome. Uh, and then from there, you know, I, I mean, I think, and it's just you know, having those conversations with Kent. And... Yeah, I think other things would be kind mm. of seeking supervision from someone who's experienced in that that field. Although I know, mm. as we've said, there's there's not too many. Yeah. Um, we do our training that we did as well. Not that 
I don't think it's one that someone could watch and then apply. But in terms yeah. of if anyone wants any more information about our model, mm. uh, the training that, that you saw us deliver, Ben, uh, at the conference, that is online now, I think, isn't it, Susan? So there's a free kind of video that people can watch Perfect. if they wanted to hear more about our model and our mm. kind of application. Mm. Yeah, mm. if you just Google the PBS UK Good Practice Conference yeah. 2023, um, I think we're at the 12th video down if you scroll down. Perfect. Um, and that's for free. Anybody can watch that back. And then do reach out to us, honestly. Um, we do have people who will contact us and we're always considering it on a case-by-case basis how much support we can provide to individuals. Sure. Um, sure. But I think, yeah, definitely prosper training, acceptance and commitment therapy, understanding values and goals. That's kind of a, a good combination and a good starting point. Oh, that's awesome. Well, folks, this this is this is ground bacon stuff you're doing, and uh, I'm sure I'm sure Kent is and and, and is is proud and uh, to, to sort of see this stuff getting applied. Um, and, and I think I think you're going to hear from a lot of people because this is an issue that that keeps coming up in a lot of the circles. I mean, a lot of folks are wondering what to do. I mean, we already know that sort of you know adolescents in general, you know, uh, you know, have a you know a, a pretty high risk and but. But there's, there is a lot of research coming out now about autistic adolescents and and, and sort of that, that high risk of suicide and, and 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 all the things related to that. And it really also kind of fits, I think, with, um, you know, these conversations kind of around neurodiversity affirming practice and whatnot. And uh, and, and and, you know, and, you know, and how things like masking and other behaviors that that that, uh, you know, um, some folks think. You know, and um, uh, you know, are, are kind of taught um, in 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 some of sort of those I think early ABA kind of models that you that you would kind of reference. Um, um, you know, actually, actually lead to actually become sort of predictors of some of this. Uh, you know, the, the the suicidal behavior certainly masking and trying to basically hide yourself um, from the world um, um, can can lead to a lot of loneliness and depression and whatnot. And so it's not surprising. And you know, and just just I mean, just being a teenager alone is. Mm-hmm. It is high risk for suicide. Being an autistic teenager is is got to be you know doubly, triply higher. And so, um, you know, I think a lot. I think you're going to see a lot of folks interested to hear about this stuff and and, and learning. And so, I'm I'm just so impressed at the at the, at the outcomes you folks have had. And uh, and and yeah, it's just, it's just awesome the work you're doing. So thanks for doing it. No, thank you so much for having us on. It's really lovely to be able to share the work and for other practitioners to hopefully be inspired that this is something that everybody can be capable of learning and hopefully delivering. Cool. And maybe once you get some stuff published, we can bring it back on and talk about that. Definitely. Love to. Definitely. All right. All right. Thanks, folks. Thank you so much. Thank you.